Curve signatures have become a highly used cryptographic primitive in secure messaging, TLS, as well as in cryptocurrencies due to their high speed benefits over more traditional signature schemes. However, virtually all signature schemes are known to be susceptible to misuse, especially when information about the nonce is leaked to an attacker. Ladder leak is a new attack that exploits side channels present in ECDSA, claiming to allow real-world breaking of ECDSA with less than a bit of nonce leakage. But what does less than a bit mean in this context? Is ladder leak really that effective at breaking ECDSA with so little information to go on? Joining us this episode are LadderLeak co-authors Akira Takahashi, Mehdi Tibushi, and Yuvalia Rome to discuss these questions and more. Akira Takahashi is currently a PhD student at Cryptography and Security Group in Aarhus University, Denmark. He received his master's degree and bachelor's degree from Kyoto University in Japan. He worked as an intern at NTT Corporation in 2018. His research interests cover implementation attacks and provable countermeasures against public key cryptography algorithms and construction of multi-party cryptographic protocols. Hey Akira. Hey Nadim. Um, Mehdi Tibushi is an alumni of uh, Ecole Normale Supérieure here in Paris. He obtained his PhD in computer science from Université Paris 7 and Université Luxembourg in 2011. He is now a distinguished researcher at NTT Corporation in Tokyo, Japan, and guest associate professor at Kyoto University in Kyoto, Japan. His research interests cover various mathematical aspects of public key cryptography and cryptanalysis. Hello, Mehdi. Hi. And finally, joining us is Yuval Yarom. He's a senior lecturer at the School of Computer Science at the University of Adelaide and a researcher at the Data61 Group in CSIRO, Australia's Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization. His main research interests are computer security and cryptography, with a current focus on microarchitectural attacks and their mitigation. He received his PhD from the University of Adelaide and a master's degree and bachelor's degree from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Hello, Yuval. Hello, Nadim. So I'm very excited to have you guys join us. This is the first episode where we have three guests at once, and it's three very distinguished guests, very distinguished researchers with highly distinguished research. So I'm, I'm excited to have you guys on. Today, we're going to be talking about your recent paper, Ladder Leak which has a very interesting claim right in the title of the paper. Read the title of the paper. It's Ladder Leak, Breaking ECDSA with Less Than One Bit of Nonce Leakage. And this has, I'm sure, information theoreticians all around the world shaking their heads and uh, scratching their heads. Uh, so I, I just I want to get this uh, out of the way to start with. This is a very interesting claim. How can you have less than one bit of information? And what do you mean by this? So maybe... Um, uh, Mehdi can go ahead and answer that. Okay, so um, so there are two things to clarify. First, what, what it means to have less than one bit of information. So 
uh, in this in these attacks, um, we are collecting information about some random number uh, that is uh, generated as part of uh, the signature of the signature process, right? And so we we are claiming that for each signature, we are collecting less than one bit of information. So what what does this mean? So um, so the, usually the random number is. Uh, a random value between say zero and uh, some large integer q. So it's it's a random integer between two large numbers. And so if we have one bit of information, say the, the top bit, for example, what we learn is essentially if uh, you're, you're in the first half or the last half of the interval, right? So that's one bit of information. So we could have less than one bit of information if we learn, for example, that the, the value is uh, in the first, say, three-thirds of the interval. So this would be less than one bit because uh, um, we, we uh, have restricted the space in which our value can be, not to half of the original interval, but to something larger than that. So that's, that's a smaller amount of information. So that, that's what it could mean to have less than one bit of information. So in our case, the less than one bit means that we actually learn a bit, but only with some probability, but it's um, exact, it's uh, accurate with only some probability. So for example, uh, we learn the top bit of that value, but we might be uh, um, predicting it incorrectly in say, uh five percent of cases for example so in, in so that you, case you would need you would need to repeat your um, collection of information more than once in order to have high confidence on that on that bit I except guess, or? except we cannot because uh this this bit is uh so the, the random value is regenerated every time uh we have a new signature so as a result um so we can't um retry uh, collecting the, the bit of inform the, the bit um, uh, several time over, so we, we just have a smaller amount of precision on that uh, bit that we learn. Okay, so elliptic curve signatures are basically just uh, signatures, but you know, over elliptic curves instead of uh, finite fields. And in elliptic curve signatures, you have, uh, or just elliptic curve cryptography in general, you have many different sort of competing curves that allow you to produce signatures. Um, you got ECDSA, which is um, the elliptic curve scheme that you're attacking in this paper. And ECDSA, as far as I know, is compatible with many different curves. And uh, you also have, for example, ED25519, which is more biased towards one particular curve. Um, but essentially, elliptic curve signatures are really very well used today. We, are, we see them used in uh, TLS, in Signal, in pretty much every protocol that tries uh, to accomplish signing or that relies on signing and has to perform signing uh, very quickly in order for it to be sufficiently performant because regular DSA is, is very, very slow. Um, could you give us a high-level overview of this ladder leak attack and how is it that it works on elliptic curve signatures um, I don't know who to ask about this. Maybe uh, Akira, you can go ahead. Yeah. So ladder leak is a vulnerability and that is caused by a small amount of leakage information that comes from the, the uh, scatter multiplication algorithm 
using the elliptic curve-based signing operation. So the attack uh, essentially consists of two phases. The first phase is a cache timing side, side channel analysis, in which the attacker tries to uh, collect the information of partial uh, leakage of a random number using the signing operation. And then after this, uh, the second phase is uh, Fourier analysis, which was originally developed by uh, Bleichenbacher. So in this phase, uh, after collecting sufficiently many signatures with a very small amount of leakage information about the random number, uh, the attacker tries to recover the secret signing key. Uh, this is achieved by solving the so-called uh, hidden number problem, which has been uh, studied uh, for decades or for two decades. Could you quickly explain what the hidden number problem is, just so that we have an idea of how you're abstracting the math behind this? Sure. So the hidden number problem was actually originally stated in the context of a Diffie-Hellman key exchange. And actually, um, it's stated as follows. So the attacker is given uh, some most significant bit information of the secret integer multiplied by some uh, public integer. And the attacker's goal is to uh, find the, the secret number by uh, observing uh, many uh, samples of this form. And uh, in order to uh, solve, uh, in order to recover the secret signing key of ECDSA, uh, the typical strategy of the attacker is to uh, solve hidden number problem uh, by using uh, partial leakage information of a random number in the signature. I see. And so how is it that you actually can obtain this partial leakage? Uh, uh, does your paper look into real-world scenarios where you look, for example, at popular implementations of TLS or, or, or SSL or, or Signal or whatever? And are you able to sort of determine common real-world scenarios where sufficiently, um, like a, a style of partial leakage that is sufficiently close to what you need for your paper actually occurs on a regular basis? Maybe, maybe Yuval can go ahead. Well, so uh, there is a slight gap here. Uh, so we can, uh, we need to collect a large number of signatures. Uh, we demonstrate that when the uh, encryption run, when OpenSSL runs, uh, we can uh, get the information that we need, but uh, we have not explored uh, whether uh, there is a realistic scenario that we can collect that large number of uh, signatures. So we, we don't know at the moment, but uh, or we are not we are not aware of a, a, a real a threat to security that this poses at the moment. However, uh, attacks only get better, so uh, it exposes a risk in the current implementation, and this risk can be mitigated relatively easily. So uh, better do it now rather than when uh, things break. Um, but ultimately, do you need a, uh, a surreal extreme amount of, uh, of, of leakage to get this attack to work? Or could you see it work with, because I know, for example, many cryptographic attacks, you know, I need nine terabytes of RAM in order to pull this off or something like that. And, and many of them uh, do describe some level of breakage on crypto systems, but with very unrealistic uh, memory trade-offs. And uh, is this the case also here, or could you pull this off? This like if you had a system that was leaking this information, could you pull this off with regular off-the-shelf hardware? 
so that depends on uh, the size of uh, the group in which your signatures are uh, the, your signature scheme is carried out. So, um, so the uh, the amount of uh, signatures that you need uh, to mount the attack and uh, the let's say uh, computational resources that you need uh, to uh, actually do the computation uh, increases sharply uh, when the the group size increases. So uh, if you use what was uh, a common maybe um, uh, almost 20 years ago now, like uh, 160 bit curves, uh, then the attack is uh, uh, easily feasible on a laptop. Uh, and then as, wow. as you increase uh, the amount of uh, uh, um, like the, the size of the group, um, then it becomes uh, harder and harder. So uh, we mounted it on uh, 192 uh, bit curve. So the, the kind of next step in the in the NIST uh, standardized curves, and uh, this required a fair amount of information uh, of, of uh, uh, a fair amount of signatures and also uh, significant computational resources, which we obtained by just uh, using uh, Amazon EC2. Like uh, we we just use this cloud uh, computational resources to to do it. So if you want to do it in the most common uh, curve size used today, which is 256, um, then uh, it's it it would require extremely large uh, amount of uh, computational resources, probably not accessible to uh, random hackers uh, without uh, significantly improving the attack. Uh, does is uh, is it possible for say the NSA? Uh, we don't really know. Well, th this technique of just using Amazon, I guess it might be a little bit expensive, but it does also make it. I mean, uh, you don't need to be a particularly special type of person. You just need to have some, some you know, reasonably s uh, small budget, not a particularly enormous budget. And I know, for example, that uh, Nadia Henninger uh, has used uh, the same. Uh, service from Amazon to do a lot of research on uh, breaking RSA, and I, I'm sure a lot of other researchers have done this. So it's not particularly impractical, I don't think. There, there is, um, there is a sort of vector for for the common person to, to 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 get sufficient computational information uh, uh, capacity to actually pull this off. So uh, your paper identifies a collection of curve implementations that are vulnerable against ladder leak. And that was particularly interesting. So were some curves, for example, easier to attack than others? Uh, maybe Akira uh, can go ahead and answer that. Yes. So actually, the ladder leak vulnerability was caused by several different factors. And if any, of, uh, any one of the factors is missing, then attack doesn't work, actually. So essentially, we identified uh, three uh, crucial conditions for the attack to work. So the first one is uh, the subgroup order of the curve. So essentially, the attack applies only if the curve order is slightly below the power of two. So that's the first one. The second one is uh, the condition about the initialization of, of the curve point uh, when it's uh, input uh, to the scalar multiplication algorithm. And lastly, uh, the underlying group operation of the elliptic curves have, have to be implemented in non-constant time. So all these conditions are very important for the ladder leak attack to work. I and assume that... 
I assume that last condition has some uh, significant importance, not just for your attack, because it can also facilitate other attacks that you can use in potentially in conjunction with this attack and get even more information out of a particular system. Exactly. However, um, the many standardized carbs uh, like uh, P1, P192 that we attacked uh, in this setting. So the typical implementation of the so-called YS transform of the curve uh, tends to have a non-constant time uh, group uh, like addition or point doubling. However, uh, other form of the curve, for example, uh, the famous uh, curve 255519, uh, this is uh, actually using uh, another type of the curve called the Montgomery curve. And the typical implementation of Montgomery curve uh, is uh, constant time. So this is why uh, our attack doesn't apply to uh, uh, other curves like CUP 25519. Okay, I see. Okay, so curve 25519 was not actually directly mentioned in the paper as far as I could see. And so I, I wanted to ask you about this. So I'm glad you well, we, we got that out of the way, I guess. Um, so the attack also... Yes, Yuval, go ahead. I, I would like to add it not necessarily the curve that is vulnerable. So, so there is part of vulnerability in the curve that it has to be an order that is slightly below a, a power of two. But once we have that, uh, the implementation can be vulnerable, cannot be vulnerable, depends on the uh, on the actual implementation. So some libraries will implement the same, uh, same curves in vulnerable ways. So it's not necessarily the curve in, that is constant time. It's implementation. I see. Okay. Um, do, do you feel like maybe there could be similar um, attacks that get discovered in the future based on uh, maybe similar a, a mutation of the current criteria that could apply to Montgomery curves? Or is that too far removed from, from your current uh, type of attack? Yes, Mehdi, go ahead. So, um, so uh, again, so as Yuval said, so the, the property is a property of the implementation and not of the of the curve itself, uh, so um, right. So but, you, it's uh, so it's possible to implement um, Montgomery curve arithmetic, or or if you are interested in signatures, more commonly uh, um, Edwards curve arithmetic in a way which is not constant time, and specifically in a way which would have the the specific vulnerability that we attack in in this paper. It's possible, but. Uh, um, it would be uh, less natural to do it like this than um, uh, right. to do it so in the usual secret way. The, so because it is the implementation that is vulnerable, you know, when you're implementing a Montgomery curve, uh, you, naturally you're going to be less likely to make side channel uh, attacks uh, errors in your uh, side channel errors in your code. Um, and so as a result, I guess I'm, I'm wondering if there is some sort of Potential, potentially visible mutation of the current criteria that could make this sort of style of attack apply to a Montgomery curve in the future, uh, not focusing more on side channels in terms of um, as they appear in elliptic curve cryptography on Montgomery curves or, or, or on other types of curves, but kind of, are, do you see, for example, a kind of a similar set of weaknesses that could result in a similar attack happening on different types of curves? Or are you really uh, set on these particular uh, conditions appearing in elliptic curves? So, um, so 
for example, we ha so there has have been uh, actual uh, paper attacking uh, um, some, um, in, let's say, uh, incorrect or or uh, imperfect implementations of uh, Edwards curves in the past, um, which uh, uh, did exploit. Um, certain type of uh, non-constant time behavior inside the implementation that was not obvious from uh, the arithmetic itself. So uh, this type of problem actually happened in uh, uh, cryptographic libraries. So uh, the let's say the reference implementation of uh, Curve 2019 for uh, um, key exchange of, of EDDSA, uh, they are um, uh, I would say um, very uh, well done and extremely safe. But when when other people, let's say, uh, re-implement um, uh, these curves, they often make uh, certain types of mistakes that lead to the type of attack uh, that that we consider in this paper. That that's that's uh, not a complete hypothetical. So this this type of problem have uh, happened in the past. Okay, so your attack promises. Full, full key recovery when it's fully successful. Uh, but there could be non-conclusive scenarios where you get partial key recovery. And we did discuss how, um, especially when you're relying on side channels, this could allow another host of attacks to aid or supplement uh, ladder leak. And so is there a sort of particularly ideal set of uh, other types of attacks different from ladder leak that could be paired with ladder leak? that you've identified in order to maximize the potential of, of ladder leaks, uh, full success and key recovery. Maybe some recent publications that discuss similar techniques, or maybe some other attacks that depend on the same sort of weaknesses occurring in the, uh, elliptic curves, uh, that, that, that are underlying the signature scheme that you're attacking. No okay. <laughs> so, um, uh, I'm not really sure the, the, the thing is, so, um, our attack, uh, so like it, it, assuming that it can recover a small part of the secret, then it's very easy to bootstrap it to recover the entire secret. So um, the, the problem is that just to recover a small part of the secret uh, requires um, a lot of work and a lot of a uh, large amount of uh, side information. So, the, so uh, in general, the, these these attacks on um, on say uh, um, uh, biased nonces on um, ECDSA signatures. The, these the, that's there's a large amount of in, in, uh, literature on on these type of attacks. So um, uh, they they all tend to have some kind of threshold. So if if you get Less than this amount of information, then basically you recover nothing. And if you, if it, as soon as you exceed the, the threshold, then you recover everything. And uh, oh, I see. Yeah. So there, is, so there really is no scenario where this is just like a partial recovery. Yeah. Uh, most exactly. likely. Oh, okay. All right. That's very interesting. Um, got it. So let's let's move on. So. In um, in your paper, you talk about the reliance uh, of your attack on a certain type of side channel attack called a cache attack, and I was wondering whether uh, you could explain the how this particular side channel works, uh, especially you know how is it different from more common and well known type of side channels like timing attacks and so on. Uh, I know that Yuval is an expert in cache attacks; has published many many papers on that. So maybe Yuval can go ahead and explain that to us. 
So uh, first, uh, the nomenclature is not very uh, well defined. So um, the names of the attack, timing attacks can encompass a cache timing attacks or things like that. Uh, basically, uh, or typically when people talk about timing attacks, we measure the time that it takes to perform the whole cryptographic operation. So we measure the time that it takes, for example, to calculate the signature. Um, with cache attacks, what we measure is the um, be the impact of the uh, of the uh, of the uh, execution of the algorithm on the cache. So how it uh, stores or how it accesses cached data, and by monitoring that, we can find out much more information than we can get in a typical timing attack because we get a both the, the spatial resolution of which locations in are cached when or are not cached, and the uh, and a more, more fine-grained resolution, timing resolution by uh, just tr uh, tracking how the cache is used over the whole uh, process of uh, performing the cryptographic operation. So that's the main uh, difference from timing. Uh, generally, what we exploit is the the fact that both the victim, uh, the cryptographic operation in this case, and the attacker run on the same computer, and then the attacker uh, uh, creates a behavior, cache behavior that they can monitor a contention. They monitor what happens in the cache. So I'm, I'm not particularly familiar with this line of research, so this might be a silly question, but I'm just wondering how much uh, insight or how much of a view the attacker trying to exploit a cache attack needs to have on the um, what the processor is doing essentially on the machine, and I'm also wondering if this level of uh, visibility is generally offered by operating systems. So if I'm if I'm basically running on that same machine and I'm trying to sort of understand how um, the uh, signature program is interacting with that machine, do I generally have the ability to have that level of fine grained uh, access to to the information necessary? So it depends on the specific attack and the specific uh, scenario. Uh, at the bottom line, we have a sharing of the of physical resource that it is uh, beneath the operating system. So the operating system uh, usually does not control the cache behavior. And uh, therefore, we can do the attack. Uh, we can do these attacks. Uh, some attacks require some more control that uh, the operating system may or may not uh, offer, depending on the scenario. Okay, um, but it's 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 not so. Uh, the operating system doesn't control the cache directly, but uh, I know, for example, that in order to access some information about the hardware in some operating systems, you need what is called the ring zero or ring one uh, sort of privileges. And are these privileges something that you would need here as well? Or can you have a sort of regular privilege uh, program running and still obtain sufficient information? So uh, all these ex the examples in this uh, paper were all done uh, with a regular user, uh, just monitoring a different process in the system. Uh, so no need for any specific privileges in this case. Very nice. And uh, is is that, uh, I guess, um, uh, CPU dependent? So if I have an AMD CPU, will the attack work the same as if I have an Intel CPU or an ARM CPU? Uh, it depends on the CPUs. Uh, so uh, 
I haven't checked with recent AMD CPUs, but uh, it uh, it used not to work on older ones. And uh, I don't know about ARMs. It, it depends. Some of them do work, some of them it does. It's kind of funny that you said it, it wouldn't work on older ones, but it might work on new ones, because the more uh, CPU manufacturers are optimizing and making their CPUs faster, the more likely it is for stuff like this to start working, because because they might... Uh, um, Make like take the same kinds of shortcuts that uh, resulted in, for example, Spectre and uh, and un unrelated, uh, completely unrelated attacks. Um, yes, Mahdi. So one point that I wanted to add is that um, so uh, in in this case, so we mounted the attack in a con in we did experiments in the in the context where um, the the two the the, the attacked program and um, the the attacking program were uh, running on the same operating system, but it's possible uh, in general that this type of attack can also apply when um, both uh, things run on separate virtual machines on the same uh, physical hardware. And this is very relevant in uh, cloud computing contexts. So uh, it's possible that uh, so very often when you uh, um, run web servers on uh, someone's uh, cloud architecture. Uh, you have your own virtual machine, but it's sh the, the physical resources themselves are shared. And as a result, it's, it's in principle possible to attack uh, another client of uh, the same cloud provider uh, running on the same hardware, but in a different virtual machine. That is indeed very relevant. Uh, I run all of my websites on a Linode uh, which is a very popular uh, sort of like VP, um, VPS um, uh, VM uh, service. And yeah, uh, Amazon is, is running on VMs uh, all the time. Uh, AWS, Azure is just a whole ton of uh, VMs. So thank you for making that point clear. That definitely uh, makes the attack relevant in, in a frighteningly enormous uh, amounts of, of uh, use cases. Um, do, do you think there might be ways to extend the reach and efficiency of this attack in the future? Did you run into a sort of brick wall that you feel is not really a brick wall, but just a matter of time until it breaks down um, in, in this research? Maybe Akira yes. can, can talk more so about this. So while we are analyzing uh, this Bleichen Bahas uh, me method uh, that attacks the hidden number problem, uh, so there's actually an interesting connection between the hidden number problem and the so-called generalized birthday problem. And this generalized birthday problem is a well-studied problem in the symmetric key cryptology. And uh, there have been a bunch of interesting observations that could be applicable to the hidden number problem. So, so in particular, um, as a byproduct of this research, uh, we observed that this generalized birthday problem would improve uh, the attack, uh, it would uh, reduce the the input data complexity so so by um, applying the technique from a generalized generalized birthday problem we can significantly reduce the required amount of signatures to complete attack so i think that uh, there are a few different directions of course in order to attack uh, a slightly more leakage like a two or three bit or leakage or somewhere in between them um, for for this setting i think um uh, definitely, there, there should be some more interesting future work uh, that can be done to attack those cases. Okay, so um, I'm looking at this attack, and I'm kind of looking at all the elements that are necessary for it to be pulled off. 
And you can see a lot of change happening in many of the elements. For example, we can see, for example, maybe that, uh, especially as post-quantum cryptography picks up, that people will move beyond elliptic curves. Uh, maybe people will adopt new primitives or maybe uh, use chems instead of regular uh, sort of uh, key sharing uh, primitives. But one thing that is not changing at all is the, or changing little compared to the other aspects, is the uh, hardware that we use to, to do all of these operations. And uh, I wanted to ask you all more about this because this is definitely something that um, has, has, has plagued um, all kinds of CPU manufacturers. Uh, I'm just wondering if, the, if there's some sort of like end uh, to the tunnel. Uh, are, are, are CPU uh, designs and manufacturers moving into a position where this entire class of uh, CPU-based side channels um, will, will, will become less common? Or is it the case that there is no way for them to do this without sacrificing performance and profit and so on? Uh, and so are, are we going to just keep being able to rely on uh, side channels and CPUs until the end of time? There is significant research on uh, how to uh, block uh, side channel attacks. Uh, there are suggestions uh, that address either specific elements such as the cache, because it is the most commonly used a source of uh, information leakage, or do processors or processors and operating system design that aim to uh, block these attacks. Um, most Many of those uh, will make attacks much more difficult. Uh, I am yet to see a suggestion that completely blocks attacks that uh, at least anything short of a just replicating the processor, so having multiple processors, and then we lose the uh, flexibility that that we currently have. Uh, the question whether we can completely block the attack or, or whether we need to completely block the attack is a question that is hard to answer. So, and this is not a kind of attack that um, can be mitigated enough in software, right? So you you definitely when we're talking about CPU side channels. It's not the case that you can have these really fast CPUs that have a ton of side channels, but you make sure that you write your code in a way that avoids them ever being exploited. So for cryptography, and if we ignore a transient execution attacks such as Spectre, and for cryptography, we know that we can write a constant time code that does not leak on the microarchitecture. Um, this is not a solution for a larger applications. Uh, cryptography tends to be relatively small implementation, relatively well uh, understood, and uh, accessing very sensitive information. So it's uh, both a target. As a target, it's uh, attackers love that, and it's relatively easy to defend. Uh, side channel attacks on other things may still be relevant. Okay. Um, all right. So I think that's all the time uh, we have. I, I, so this is multiple recordings, but I think we're about 35 minutes and I try to keep these episodes to 40. Uh, anything you guys have to add? Uh, this is a very interesting topic. It has a lot of different angles and there are so many of you on this episode. So maybe I wanted to start with Mahdi. Anything to add before we sign off? So, like, I, I wanted to emphasize that indeed, uh, it's not really plausible to uh, um, make 
all our uh, all the code that we use uh, in our programs uh, constant time. So um, a very good way to see this is uh, to think about uh, uh, programs that uh, read into memory, right? So uh, typically, cache attacks will reveal memory access patterns. And so as soon as you uh, access some specific location in memory that depends on some secrets that you don't reveal, um, uh, you're, uh, you have basically lost the game, right? So uh, to, to avoid that, the, the most naive approach would be to, uh, every time you want to, to read a memory location inside some specific space, so say an array, then you would have to read the entire array sequentially in order to avoid revealing the specific location that you're looking looking at. So there that are, sounds like it's going to make everything a lot slower. Right. Is so, there is there is, is the performance impact on this stuff such that everything we're just completely done for or is there a way to sort of uh, still optimize for speed a little bit when 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 applying these mitigations? So 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 there are, so when doing crypto you can either structure your code uh, in a different way in order to always avoid having this type of, say, for example, uh, secret-dependent memory accesses. Um, so often this requires thinking about new algorithms to do the same thing. So um, that's one possible approach. And there are, so like theoretical cryptographers have also kind of uh, thought about uh, more generic approaches. So for example, in the case of uh, uh, avoiding revealing secret memory accesses. Uh, there's an entire side of uh, theoretical crypto, which is called oblivious RAM, that does this sort of things. Uh, and they, they do it in a way which is maybe fairly efficient from the standards of theoretical crypto, but uh, is still probably very far from uh, being practical um, for uh, the, the being used in general, let's say. So, um, so the for, for specifically cryptographic codes, uh, what you want to do is uh, rewrite, like rewrite everything from scratch, and make sure that uh, uh, you avoid uh, side channel leakage. I see. Okay. Uh, and Akira, anything to add um, before we sign off? Yeah. So I think Mehdi gave a very good point. So from me, um, so I'm giving a more high-level uh, comment. So I think as we showed in this research, um, so there are so many ways, um, so many ways when you implement uh, the cryptographic uh, algorithms uh, when uh, things go, goes wrong. So, so of course we should always try to pay attention to uh, any non-constant time behavior and uh, even a tiny amount of leakage information, like one bit or less than one bit, uh, could actually lead to a practical attack. So, so of course, uh, we should always uh, try to be careful, careful about that. And as a researcher, we should always try to concretely evaluate the risk of uh, such small leakage information. And then sometimes this could uh, become a, a very devastating attack. So I, I think that it's a very important research area that the people should pay attention to. Absolutely. Okay. And uh, Yuval, anything to add before we sign off? Um, yes. Um, we have mentioned the, the 
trade-offs to improve performance uh, by uh, not uh, accessing, for example, all elements of an array. Um, there have been such approaches tried in the past, uh, and there have been other shortcuts tried in the past, and people were thinking that various leakages are not exploitable, and it turns out that uh, with enough uh, effort, and uh, the attackers can exploit these, so uh, new implementations will recommend not to do any of these shortcuts. Uh, it will help, uh, I think. Uh, it's in a sense I'm uh, shooting myself in the leg because uh, I, this is my research area and I'll have to find something else to do. But uh, I think it will be best for everyone. Well, don't worry because uh, now we're all implementing all of these lattice-based crypto schemes and uh, super singular isogeny-based crypto schemes with moving to post-quantum cryptos. There's a whole new world of, of side channels maybe to, to exploit there. Um, and on that note, uh, I wanted to thank you all for coming to uh, this show and talking about your interesting research. Mehdi Tibushi, Akira Takahashi, and uh, Yuval Yarom uh, from Japan, um, uh, Denmark, and Australia. Um, very distinguished researchers with uh, excellent um, boundary pushing research. And um, maybe next time it'll be you who's on Cryptography FM talking about your boundary pushing research and amazing applied cryptography projects. Uh, whether you've uh, found side channels in, uh, I don't know, the lattice based crypto schemes or whether you have made a CPU that never has a side channel. Come and talk about it. Come on this show and participate in this new medium of sharing interesting news in applied cryptography with the rest of the community. But whether you are a listener or an active participant, I hope to see you again next week on Cryptography FM. Cryptography FM.